Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Last week, we looked at the first part of Daniel chapter 9 at the prayer that Daniel prayed. And once again, that message seems to have resonated out there. I think every once in a while, the reminder of how to pray reverently and how to admit our guilt before God just sort of resonates with the people of God. And I've been very happy with the feedback on that message. But as I promised, tonight we're going to get into Daniel's 70 weeks, which promises to bring with it a certain amount of controversy because there are a great many different interpretations that depend on the a priori position that the interpreter brings with him when he gets to the 70 weeks of Daniel. In other words, if you're amillennial, you're going to interpret the 70 weeks in an amillennial way. And if you're covenantal, then you're going to interpret it that way. And if you are post-millennial or, or worse yet, if you are preteristic, then you are going to interpret the 70 weeks that way. Now, I would like to think that my a priori position, which is premillennial, is not going to be the deciding factor in how I understand and interpret this. But there are just certain facts that if we look at them at face value, if we just read what the words say, there are certain facts that are going to drive us to certain conclusions. We're going to spend some time reading. We're going to spend some time talking about it. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time reading from an article by Fred Zaspel. I've known Fred for years and years, but he does a good job of laying out the six things that have to be accomplished during the 70 times 7 Daniel is made aware of via Gabriel. So let's start reading at verse 20. We finished with this last week. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. Okay, hold on to this because this is the first really important point. He says, my people Israel. Now, Gabriel, in a little while when speaking to Daniel, is going to say that 70 times 7 are determined for your people. So it's important that we understand that this is not about the church. This is not about Gentiles. This is about Israel. Specifically, Daniel was speaking and praying and confessing the sin of the people Israel. My sin and the sin of my people, Israel. And presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. In other words, he was concerned about Jerusalem. So he was concerned about the people of Israel and the place where God's name was placed, where the worship of God took place, the mountain of Jerusalem. While I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. 
And he gave me instruction and he talked to me and he said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued and I have come to tell you for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. As Tom pointed out last week, as soon as Daniel began the prayer, as soon as he began his fasting and his supplications, at that point, an angel was immediately sent to Daniel to bring him the vision and the understanding. But as we're going to see in the very next chapter, which we might even get to a little bit of tonight, there are angelic strongholds that Gabriel and Michael had to break through to even get to Daniel because Daniel was in Persia at the time and Persia was not just a political entity, it was a spiritual entity that was oppressing God's people, Israel. And so as Paul writes, that we don't just wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places, you see that demonstrated here. I mean, why Gabriel, with his speed like lightning, why couldn't Gabriel immediately show up at Daniel's side as soon as Daniel began praying? Well, he's going to explain that to us in a minute, that he had to break through the angelic strongholds to get to Daniel. So he gave me instruction, and he talked to me, and he said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding at the beginning of your supplications. The command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. The NASB says weeks because our concept in modern English of a week is seven days. It's Shabua. It's, it's the standard word for seven. It's actually 70 sevens. Now, this is not just a completely arbitrary number. The reason that Israel was taken into captivity in the Babylonian captivity and the reason that it was specifically 70 years, according to Jeremiah, was because they had not allowed the land to keep its Sabbaths. So they were taken out of the land of Israel, specifically so the land of Israel could keep its Sabbaths. Now, the land Sabbath was every seven years. And so if you add up the 70 years that they were in Babylon, and they were there a year for each Sabbath they had skipped, that's a total of 490 years. So they are actually in Babylon for 70 years because they had broken God's Sabbath rule for 490 years. And now Daniel is praying, just keep the 70 years and send us back like you said you were going to. And the angel Gabriel shows up and says, let me tell you the next 490. So it's not an arbitrary number. It's actually a number that perfectly corresponds with the reason that they were in the Babylonian captivity in the first place. 70 weeks, or 70 sevens, have been decreed for your people and your holy city. That's who he was praying about. He was praying about his people Israel and the holy mountain of God. So now there are 490 
years decreed. The reason that most commentators agree that it's years is that 490 weeks of seven days simply isn't enough time to satisfy everything that has to happen because he's about to give us a list of six things that have to occur sometime during that 70 times seven. Also in months, it just isn't satisfied, especially because it culminates in the death of Messiah. And so commentators across the board agree, again, because 490 years was the period of time that they had broken the Sabbath, and 70 years is the time that they were going to be in Babylon, and so 490 years is what everybody sort of universally agrees about. Now, they disagree about the particular divisions of those years, but they agree that we're talking about years here. So 77s have been decreed for your people and your holy city to do six things. Is it worth writing on the board? Sure. Sure. Oh, a minute ago, I wasn't going to do it. Okay. So. So one, two, three, four, five, six things. These are the six things that have to be accomplished during this 490-year period. Finish the transgression. To make an end of sin. End of sin. To make atonement for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up the vision and prophecy. I'm just going to write seal up prophecy. And lastly, to anoint the Kodesh Kodeshim, the most holy place. So anoint most holy. Wow. <laughs> wow. My hand just freaked out on me there. Those are the six things, and part of the advantage of writing them on the board is that you can see individually what each of these things is declaring, rather than me explaining each of these. This is why I brought Fred's article along, because he is much more versed in the Hebrew language. I'm certainly not. And so he actually breaks these six things down for us so that we can understand exactly what's being said, because... Gabriel, speaking for God, is very specific that these six things have to occur during the 490 years. If these six things have not been accomplished yet, then we can't say the 490 years are completely over. So the first one that is translated to bring an end speaks of an ending, a finishing, or a firmly restraining of something. What is firmly restrained? 
It is hapasha. It is understood as rebellion, waywardness, that principle of evil that is within men. Okay, so that has to completely be finished, wrapped up, restrained completely sometime during the 490 years. Can we say that that's happened yet? No, no. No. The second thing, the precise reading of this second word signifies to seal up sin or it means to make a complete ending of the sins that are spoken of here, which refer to man's personal daily sins, their activity of sin. In either case, the thought is that an end of sin will be made. Can we say that that's been accomplished? No. To make atonement for guilt promises a complete expiation of the sin and trespasses that are completely done away with. Can we say that's happened? Well, actually, in a way, we can. We can say, well, Christ has done that. So, okay, we've got one positive there. All three of these first objectives are, in effect, negative in that they speak of the removal of sin and guilt, that which was the cause of Israel's captivity. Together, they promise not only atonement, but the actual ceasing of the sin itself. Sin itself, as an inward principle and as a practice, will be ended, and those sins previously committed will be pardoned. The 70 weeks will see a complete removal of the sin of Daniel's people forever. Now, that's what God promised through an angel. Now, are we going to say, well, that means some um, spiritualized thing? Or are we going to say the words are very exacting? The 490 years are not finished until those things have actually been accomplished because God was very specific in describing what the 490 years are about. They're going to bring about a finishing of transgression, an end of sin, and an atonement for iniquity. Let's look at the last three things. To bring in everlasting righteousness... Now, by the way, this article that I'm reading from is actually on our website. It's in my book, A Brief History of the Future. I actually quoted Fred word for word verbatim. So you can see all of the Hebrew phrases that I cannot pronounce. And so you can go look at it on the website for yourself if you want to. He writes, by contrast, the last three purposes are much more positive, speaking of blessings that are given. The fourth thing is to bring in everlasting righteousness, which signifies the opposite of what has gone before. Just as God will remove Israel's sin, also he will fulfill, which means cause to come in, a righteousness that will endure forever. So does Israel have a righteousness at this point that is ever enduring? No. Well, then the 490 years can't be accomplished yet. Number five is to seal the vision and the prophet. And that signifies the final fulfillment of the prophetic revelation. The time specified will see the perfect completion of all the visions and all the words of all the prophets. Everything that's been prophesied in the Bible is finally going to come to its full, complete fruition. So if you can find one prophecy in the Bible that isn't finished yet, you have to say the 490 years are not finished yet. Number six, to anoint the Holy of Holies. 
that clearly speaks of a ritual consecration of the Jewish temple. Noteworthy also is the fact that the 70 weeks here are viewed as a unit. 70 weeks is determined, not 70 weeks are determined. So it's thought of as a complete unit during which these things have to be accomplished. Gabriel is saying that all the objectives will be carried out, but not finally until the 70th week. 70 weeks is determined to accomplish these six things. 70 weeks to bring transgression to an end, to seal up sin, to make atonement for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the Holy of Holies. So in summary, the 70 weeks will see the complete removal of Israel's sin forever, the establishment of everlasting righteousness, the final fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy, and the consecration of the temple. So all of this helps us to establish the time frame of the prophecy as well. Clearly, it involves the earthly life and the ministry of Jesus. His sacrificial work is the atonement that's spoken of in number three. But he has not yet, quote, put an end to the sin of Israel, which number one and two say. He is in principle, to be sure, but not in actuality. The sins continue to this very day. Nor have the many prophecies of the Old Testament been fulfilled, which is number five. Nor has the Holy of Holies been anointed, number six. So these words seem to suggest a yet future fulfillment. However, not to jump too far ahead of us, the remainder of the passage should be allowed to speak to this question also. Okay, that's Fred's writing. Was that helpful to you? Yes. Uh, Fred did such a good job of laying out that case that I thought, well, why would I say it any differently? He's already said it. So we are now back in Daniel 9. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So, you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, all you math geniuses in the room and all you homeschooled kids, how much is seven and 62? Seven and 62 is obviously 69 weeks, which means that there is a week hanging out there somewhere. It starts from the issuing of a decree. Hold on to that idea. It's the issuing of a decree to restore or rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there are going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Stop there. Your King James Version will say he will be cut off, but not for himself. Now, there are several different schemes that people use to try to mathematically figure out what Daniel is talking about. 
The one that I laid out in a fair amount of detail many years ago when we were doing the eschatology series was the one by Sir Robert Anderson, which at the time I was quite intrigued by. In his book, The Coming Prince, and then repeated in his book, Daniel and the Critics' Den, but he began with the decree of Artaxerxes, the second decree, that sent Nehemiah back to rebuild the city and the walls and the temple and everything. He used that date, and then he did a bit of mathematical wizardry where he took the 360-year Jewish year, 30 days a month, 12 months, 360 days, and then he divided that out into the exact number of years specified here by the 69 weeks of years. He broke it down to a number of days, and then he transferred that by dividing that by 365 and a quarter until he got the actual number of years on our calendar, and then he divided that out, and then he ended up right at, almost to the day, the triumphal entry of Jesus when he came into Jerusalem in the same week in which he was cut off having nothing for himself. It's a really attractive scheme. The problem with it over the years, as I've thought through it and as I've read different ideas, the problem with it is that the Jews did know that there were 365 days in a year, which is why every couple of years they would add a month in order to bring their calendar back around to the change of seasons. And to this day, we still deal with that. That's why every year Passover moves on our solar calendar because it's based on the lunar calendar. But then every couple of years, the Jews add another month so that it brings Passover back into early spring because Passover's always got to be in the spring. So if the Jews knew that 365 days was a full solar year and in order to bring their lunar calendar back around to make it in keeping with the seasons and so they kept adding these months, well, then I don't know that Sir Robert Anderson's math is, is that convincing, but it's, it's really attractive. Now, let me give you another approach. Fred takes the approach, Fred, who I just read from. Fred takes the approach that because the seven years is actually mentioned separate from the 62 years, he said there was a seven-year period of time that Gabriel was referring to, and then there's a 62-year period of time. And he has come to the conclusion that it starts with the decree from Jeremiah that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt again, and according to his calculations, from the time that that was decreed through the prophet Jeremiah until the time of the actual decree from Cyrus that all the Jews who wanted to could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, that's 49 years. And so he said, well, well there it is. There's your seven times seven right there. And then he posits a gap of time between the seven and the 62, the same way that there's a gap of time between the 62 and the last seven. He then says that that begins again with the decree of Artaxerxes, the second decree to go back and rebuild because it says very specifically that the city is going to be rebuilt. The moats and the walls and everything is going to be rebuilt. And that doesn't happen under Cyrus and it doesn't happen under the first decree 
from Artaxerxes, which is the time of Ezra. It doesn't happen until the time of Nehemiah, when they go back and have to fight with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other as they're rebuilding Jerusalem. He says that's the starting point. And then in as much as our modern calendars kind of figure that Jesus was probably born somewhere 2 BC to 4 BC, so he sees the date of the final 62 weeks of years as coinciding with the birth of Jesus. And he works that out mathematically. So it's the coming of the Messiah and then him being cut off. I think the language is a little more specific. At the end of the 69 weeks of years, then Messiah is going to be cut off. Here's what we know. Either way that you slice it, any way that you divide it, whether you start at Jeremiah's prediction, whether you start at Cyrus's prediction, whether you start at the first decree of Artaxerxes, if you start at the second decree of Artaxerxes, have I said the word Artaxerxes enough tonight? That's a name that I'm glad we do one more. Artaxerxes. Um, whichever starting date you want to start with to decipher the 69 weeks of years. And even if you want to separate the seven years from the 62, because it seems to happen here in the language, Gabriel didn't just say 69 weeks of years. He said seven years, then 62, so maybe there is a division. Here's what we know. We know that the 69 weeks of years comes to its conclusion at the cutting off of Christ. It is said that specifically. Messiah is going to be killed, but not for himself. That is the end of the 69 weeks of years, which leaves, as I keep saying, the 70th week. It's still hanging out there somewhere. We can account for 69 of those weeks, but this didn't happen. The things on the board did not happen during those 69 weeks of years. Now, yes, they culminated in the death of Christ, and so there was atonement for iniquity. Yes, that occurred. But if you're going to say that you can also find the 70th week somewhere in history, then you have to explain these six things. And if you can't say these six things have been accomplished, then the 70th week is still hanging out there somewhere. And I will give you a preview of coming attractions not only does Daniel frequently speak in terms of three and a half, which is half of seven, for those of you homeschooled kids who can't do math, <laughs> and you get to the book of Revelation and you see the three and a half show up again, and they're very specific, 42 months, 1,260 days, lunar days, a time, a time, half a times, the same thing that Daniel talks about. So there seems to be a direct connection between what Daniel's talking about here and what John the Revelator saw, 92 AD, sitting on the Isle of Patmos. So that pushes the 70th week out into the future, still according to John. And I would argue, based on these six things on the board, it's still future to us. If you disagree with that, then you have to demonstrate that. You have to prove that. Now, I'll show you one of the arguments that people make from a more preteristic standpoint or a more amillennial standpoint because the next thing that Gabriel tells Daniel starting in verse 26 is then after the 62 weeks the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come okay that's not Jesus the prince that is to come because he's about to describe what the people of that prince do. 
So we know that it's not a good character. It's a bad character because here's what they do. They destroy the city and they destroy the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even at the end, there will be a war and desolations are determined. Okay, that's not Christian language. That's the language of the little horn, who we've already met a couple times in the book of Daniel. That there is a world leader still coming on the stage of history. And he is going to oppose God. And he's going to oppose everything that is called godly. And he's going to oppose the saints. And that he's going to accomplish all kinds of wickedness and all kinds of dark sentences. So after 62 weeks, after the first seven, then the next 62, the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And then the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be a war. Desolations are determined. And he, he, that prince who is to come, that's the direct referent. He, the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. There's your 70th week, one more week. So here's what Gabriel seems to be describing. He seems to be saying that the seven weeks and the 62 weeks are going to run. At the end of that total of 69 weeks of years, Jesus the Messiah is going to be on the stage of history. He's going to be cut off, but not for himself. After that, at some point, another gap in time, I think we could argue that that's the time of the Gentiles. But after that gap of time, there is a prince to come, no mystery, because in Daniel, we've already met the little horn a couple of times. And when he comes, the people who follow him are going to destroy the sanctuary, and his destruction is going to be with a flood. But here's what he's going to do. He's going to make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Who are the many? In Daniel's prayer, who is he praying about? In Gabriel's vision, who is he talking about? Israel. Israel. He's going to make a firm covenant. Okay, what have we seen? The beginning of the 70 times 7 is the beginning of the declaration that Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt and the temple is going to be rebuilt. And then that decree stated by Cyrus and then it's stated by Artaxerxes, and then it's brought about by Ezra, and the work ends, and then it's restarted by Nehemiah, and then there's this gap of time, and what's the thing that the Antichrist does when he shows up? What's the thing the little horn does when he shows up? He makes a covenant, a deal with the people of Israel so that they can go back and rebuild their temple and rebuild the city. It's the same thing he's talking about all the way through. But in the middle of the week, three and a half for those math majors in the room, in the middle of the week, he's going to break that covenant. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offerings, which of course would be going on if the temple was rebuilt. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now that particular reference to the abomination 
of desolation, the one who makes the temple desolate, is picked up several times in the New Testament. The New Testament writers, including Jesus himself, seems to think that this prophecy is a firm prophecy from God. They quote it, they refer to it, and they keep casting it into the future. So the New Testament hermeneutic concerning this section of Daniel seems to be that this one to come, this Antichrist, this little horn, this man understanding dark sentences, this one that's going to make a covenant with Israel for a week, and halfway through the week he's going to break the covenant, that one is future to everybody in the New Testament. So now we have to ask the question, is he still future to us? Well, here's what we know. In that last week, that 70th week, if the Antichrist is on the stage of history, then that's the time of the return of Christ, because we've seen that repeatedly through Daniel's prophecies, that it's while the ten-toed kingdom is on the planet that the stone kingdom comes down from heaven and crushes all the previous kingdoms and sets up the kingdom that's never going to end. So once the 70th week runs to its final fruition, that's the return of Christ, and every one of these things can be accomplished. But it hasn't happened yet. So there is a seven-year period, a very compressed period of time, coming up yet on planet Earth. And, and the reason I say seven exact years, and the reason that I speak of it mathematically that way, is because all the previous years have run exact. As soon as you recognize that Israel was, in fact, in Babylon for 70 years. Well, now you've got mathematic certainty happening. And so I believe there's going to be a period of time, a very compressed period of time, when there's going to be a world leader who is unlike anybody that's been on the planet since Alexander the Great. He's going to accomplish great and wonderful things. People are going to marvel at him and say, who is like the beast? He's going to construct a statue of himself. He's going to designate that he himself should be worshipped and nobody else and he's going to put a, an idol of himself he's going to construct in the temple showing himself that he is God which has been Satan's intention since the very beginning and he's going to make a deal with Israel that they can rebuild the walls and rebuild their temple which is something they want to do at this very moment and when he allows them to do it they're going to have about three and a half years of relative peace and safety before he breaks the covenant, sets himself up as the God of the temple, and he's going to set up the abomination that makes the temple desolate. That's the big picture. And I don't know how else to read this. Now, I will tell you that there are folk who, when they read about the final week and that in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice, the grain offerings. They interpret that without getting into he brings an abomination. They interpret that as Christ died in the middle of the 70th week. And that when Christ died, that ended the Jewish religion. So the sacrifices and the grain offerings in the temple were ended by the death of Christ. So they do kind of clever mathematic schemes so that they can put Jesus and his death, they can make that the mark of the 70th week. But then you've still got three and a half years hanging out there somewhere, which they then rather haphazardly decide is 70 AD. That the three and a half years designate 70 AD when Jerusalem fell under Titus, the Roman general. I don't think that fits the text. I think you have to play kind of fast and loose with what the text says in order to come to those conclusions. 
because even then, if the 70 weeks is completed as of 70 AD, you can't say these six things were accomplished. So that's still a problem. The only way to make sense of the text and let the text say what it says and stay consistent with the other visions that Daniel has already seen and the interpretations of those visions, the only way that you can let the word remain the word and let it say what it says is to agree that there's a 70th week hanging out there somewhere at the end of which these six things will be accomplished. Because they're not accomplished yet, and if they're not accomplished yet, the 70th week hasn't happened yet. And I would argue, if Christ isn't back yet, the 70th week hasn't happened. If the little horn isn't on the planet yet, and the temple in Jerusalem is not rebuilt, then the 70th week hasn't happened yet, because all of those things are included in what has to happen during the 70th week. Does that make sense? Yes. You finally answered. I throw out math questions, <laughs> silence. So let's talk about this abomination of desolation for just a moment. We may come back here to Daniel. We may not. Turn to Matthew 24 for just a second. Because I've referenced this several times, but I want you to see that Jesus takes this quite seriously. Starting in Matthew 24, which you know is the uh, Olivet Discourse, when he sits on the Mount of Olives and they ask him, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're obviously expecting the end of the age. They know that this is something that Jesus and all of the Old Testament prophets have taught. So he starts telling them what to watch for. And starting in verse 15, he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which abomination of desolation? Which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. Okay, so Jesus seems to think that Daniel is a prophet. He does not seem to think that the book is a forgery that was written sometime in the, the 90s BC during the Antiochus Epiphanes period. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, where? Standing in the holy place. That's everything Daniel has told us. That the one who makes desolate is going to set up an image of himself, and that then he is going to demand worship to himself, and he's going to be standing in the holy place. Now let me also, at this moment, see if I can put to bed one more real popular interpretation of Daniel. Because one interpretation of Daniel's abomination that makes desolation is the idea of Antiochus Epiphanes, who did, in fact, sacrifice a pig on the altar and did set up a statue of Zeus inside the temple. And so there are people who say, well, that's it. That's the abomination that makes desolate. And that would be completely true, and I would agree completely if it weren't for Jesus a couple hundred years later, speaking of it future tense and saying, when you see the abomination. So it can't be Antiochus. I think Antiochus is a very good foreshadow of what is coming, but he's not the fulfillment of it. Jesus says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet sitting in the holy place, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea, by the way, that's very specific. Let those who are in Judea. Who's in Judea? Israelites. Israelites, the Judahites. Mm -hmm. 
They're the ones Jesus is talking to. Why? Because they're the ones Daniel was talking to. They're the ones Gabriel was talking to. They're the ones Daniel was praying about. This isn't about the church. Despite the left behind books and movies and everything else, Jesus is not talking about the church here. He's talking about those that are in Judea where the temple is, where they would see the abomination that makes desolate. Then let those that are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and get the things that are in the house and let not And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those that are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Does that matter at all to Jeff? If the flight was on the Sabbath? No, he's not a Sabbath keeper because he's a Christian. He's part of the church. Who do Sabbath rules apply to? Israel, who were in the Babylonian captivity specifically because they didn't keep the Sabbaths. And so Jesus makes it very specific that he's talking about Israelites. Pray that your flight won't be on the Sabbath, for then will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Now, in saying that, Jesus left out one very important detail, which was when you see the abomination of desolation that's spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and you see him standing in the temple, then flee to the mountains. But he doesn't say exactly where. What you have to do is go back and read Daniel, because Daniel tells you where to flee. Not you. He tells the Israelites where to flee. I don't want to confuse anybody. Look up Daniel 11.41 for us for just a moment, Tom. And Daniel is describing, after all the king of the north and the king of the south stuff, he's going to describe the little horn and the areas that the little horn doesn't get to. And those three places just happen to be in the wilderness and mountains right outside of Jerusalem, the very place that Jesus is saying, flee to. What does it say? He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. Okay, now they even know where to flee to. Jesus is giving so much credibility to Daniel that he's even counting on you knowing Daniel to know where the place is to flee to. So Daniel said it via the angel Gabriel. Jesus confirmed it. But that's not all. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2.4 for a second. 2 Thessalonians, Paul writing, 2 Thessalonians 2. Just before the two Timothys, you'll find the two, two Thessalonian letters. Let's start right at the beginning of chapter 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now we haven't gotten into day of the Lord stuff to a great extent during this Daniel study, 
but that's the time of great tribulation that Jesus just referred to, a time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again. Daniel talks about it, day of trouble which never was, never shall be again. Jeremiah refers to it as the time of Jacob's trouble. So again, we're referring to Israel here. It's very specific. But as Paul is writing, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Paul says, don't be fooled by anybody who tells you that's already happened. Because it hasn't happened yet. Verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasia, that's the word in Greek, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who's that? The little horn, the same person we're talking about in Daniel, he has to be revealed future to Paul. And it's not until he is revealed that the day of the Lord is going to come and Christ is going to return to set up his everlasting kingdom. And so now he's going to describe this man of lawlessness. First, the man of lawlessness has to come, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you, I was telling you these things? Notice that Paul says, when I was there with you for a short time in Thessalonica, I got all eschatological on you. Because the eschatology is a very important part of the entire gospel. The return of Christ and the events that lead up to the return of Christ are all very important parts of the gospel, and Paul taught them this. But look at the description. He's going to make an object of worship, and he's going to take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's everything that we've read from Isaiah's description of Satan and Ezekiel's description of Satan and his desire to put his seat in the place of the north and I will be worshipped as God. That's everything that Daniel has seen coming out of the little horn who's going to set up the abomination of desolation so that he can be worshipped as God. Paul still mentions it and casts it out into the future. Okay, so now Paul is writing somewhere 30 years after the death of Christ and then comes 70 AD. So people would say, well... Then 70 AD, that's it. That's the destruction. That's the thing that is the culmination of all that. So it's important to understand when the book of Revelation was written. Now, historically, we know that John was on the Isle of Patmos during the reign of Domitian. The time he is sent to the Isle of Patmos is 90 to 94 AD. And so if he is on the Isle of Patmos after 70 AD, and then he sees a vision that also casts the little horn out into the future, well, then 70 AD wasn't it. We're still waiting for it. And as it turns out, we have evidence of that too. So turn to the book of Revelation, and we're going to go to Revelation 13. Let's start there. Revelation 13 is going to sound very Daniel-like. And we read it a few weeks ago, the first part of it. Starting at chapter 13, verse 1, he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns, 
and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Does that sound familiar? That's Daniel language. Ten-toed kingdom. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Well, that's Daniel again. And his feet were like those of a bear, Daniel. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, because he gave his authority to the beast. So they're actually worshipping Satan as they're worshipping this abomination of desolation, this little horn, this beast. They worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war on him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. How long is 42 months? All you math wizards? Three and a half years. years. So John is starting to describe that 70th week that's still hanging out there. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongues and nations was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Why won't they worship him? They're gone. gone. Mm. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Mm. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. And here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, And he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like the dragon. And then he's going to describe the false prophet. Who's going to give voice to the abomination of desolation, the statue that's set up in the temple. The false prophet is going to miraculously make that image speak. And people are going to worship that image. And Paul tells us, that God is going to give the people of earth a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that they will be condemned because they didn't have the love of the truth and they worshipped the little horn. That, in a nutshell, is the 70 weeks. I don't think you can say with any great confidence that the 70 weeks are completed because these six things aren't completed. And if they are, you've got to prove it somehow. So until these things are accomplished, the 70 weeks are not accomplished. 69 weeks of years culminated in the death of Christ, but then the 70th week is hanging out there somewhere, and Daniel's constant references to three and a halfs and three and a halfs 
carrying all the way forward to the book of Revelation and the three and a half and the 42 months and the 1,260 days. And that being predicted after 70 AD, Jesus giving Daniel credibility, I have to put all of those pieces together looking at the whole corpus of the Bible and come to the conclusion that the 70th week is still hanging out there somewhere because when it is accomplished, Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that, my friends, will be a good day. I won't even ask if you have questions. I'm not even going to risk that. I'm just hoping that you learned something tonight and that you made some connections and that you see how the Bible is telling one story over and over again. Next week, we'll look at the Prince of Persia and the Prince of Grisha and the uh, spiritual elements behind that. And then we're going to get into the King of the North and the King of the South, and you're going to be amazed at the specificity with which Daniel describes the future to come. And the King of the North and the King of the South culminate in, surprise, the little horn, who comes directly out of the Middle East, where all the trouble is right now, and all the people are that want to blow Israel off the map and push them into the sea. That's the very place that the little horn comes out of. So at that point, the Bible and prophecy and world politics start to congeal, which gives me great confidence that these six things on the board are going to happen. And boy, won't it be nice when there's no more sin, no more transgression, everlasting righteousness. And we won't be tired. That'll be nice. (laughs) Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for another opportunity to look into your word. We have great confidence that the things that you have shown to the prophets are for our edification, for our education, and for the building up of our faith. And in the end, I hope that's what we've accomplished tonight, is that the people who hear this message and who look into your word come away saying, what a great God we serve, what a sovereign God who's in charge of human history and who can declare the end from the beginning. Even though we know that there are dark days ahead from what is described here, we know that in the end Christ reigns, Christ rules, and that you give him a name that's above every name, and that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know the end. We know the end of the book. We know that you ultimately conquer, that we are ultimately glorified, And we are just very, very grateful for your revelation of yourself. So now as we go our separate ways, get us home safely. Get us to our beds. Give us a good night's sleep. Tomorrow, whatever we do, let us do it with all our strength as unto the Lord. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.